Welcome again to RUF. Um, what I hope this Tuesday night meeting can be a meeting that everybody is welcome to. We're going to be um, doing something kind of atypical this semester than what we normally do in this Tuesday night meeting. Uh, what we normally do in this Tuesday night meeting is I teach through a, either a book or a portion of the book of a Bible. Uh, last semester we did uh, Luke 9 through 19. In the fall semester we did the Psalms. This semester we're doing something really different. And it's something we'll only do once every three or four years. If you're in RUF long enough, this might come around. But every three or four years we'll do one topical study on relationships. And that's what we're doing this semester. And so we'll be jumping around in Scripture throughout the semester examining what Scripture has to say about relationships. And we'll be talking in general terms at times about all relationships. And we'll be talking about specific relationships at times in specific terms about dating, about love, about sexuality, about marriage. And in order to do that, we're going to look throughout all of Scripture. And the only reason, uh, again, normally we just go through the book of the Bible... But the reason that every now and then, every three to four years, we address this topic is because it's a topic that has to be addressed. In a lot of ways, um, they're kind of, there are a thousand reasons. Um, but there are two reasons I was, I'm going to tell you tonight why we're doing it this fall. Um, the first one is good. The second one, you're going to think I'm ridiculous, but I'm actually right. Um, <laughs> the first one is because there are a thousand voices competing for your ear and for your heart to inform you about what relationships are, to teach you about what love is. There are a thousand different things that come to us in a bajillion different manners. It's not necessarily TV or movies or music. It's also in the relationships we've seen in our parents, the dating relationships we've seen that around. We have to let Scripture speak actually above those thousands of voices and see what Scripture has to say. There are things that are just coming at you from a myriad of different directions telling you, hey, this is what dating is like. This is what marriage is. This is what love is. And so we have to because what we'll find tonight is relationship is actually who we are. Relationships are foundational what it means to be human. We have to let Scripture speak to this. And so that's why we're addressing it topically. <coughs> You're going to think I'm ridiculous for the second point. The second point is because Gossip Girl is reality. Um, <coughs> some of you, as you get to know me, I hope I don't you know, lose you know, esteem in your eyes. Uh, I have a weakness for teen soaps. I think it is justifiable, and we can talk about it. But uh, just recently, I've only watched four episodes of Gossip Girl. I'm not sure I'm going to keep watching it. I'm a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but last night, don't leave over the fact that I watched Gossip Girl. That's unchristian. But anyways. <laughs> last night, we watched the season finale. And um, 
I mean, the show is kind of like phenomenally vicious. I mean, if you're if y'all are familiar with it at all. Um, and as we when we sat down to watch it, I made this joke. Elizabeth was making fun of me for watching for wanting to watch it because I actually t voted it and said, "Hey, Elizabeth, let's watch Gossip Girl." Um, <laughs> I lost all of y'all for the rest of the night. That's it. <laughs> but I, I joked at the beginning. I said, Elizabeth, we have to watch this. This is reality. This is what real people are dealing with and all this kind of stuff. You know, this is what real life is. If we want to be relevant to young people, we have to watch Gossip Girl because that's who they are. And we were joking about it and laughing about it. But as we watched, again, season finale is always drama-packed. As we watched it, this is what happens in the season finale. Friends, lovers, parents, children, and enemies relate to one another. And as they relate to one another, they hurt each other. And inside all of these relationships, the TV show is just being melodramatic and demonstrating all of our relational coping mechanisms. And what happens in the season finale is when one person hurts another person, um, sometimes they'll get passive-aggressive. Sometimes in very overt or very subtle ways, they'll get back at them or make them pay, right? Sometimes they'll just abandon the friendship or the relationship altogether. Again, in Gossip Girl, this applies to lovers, friends, parents, whoever it is. Sometimes when relational rupture came in, um, they would just lie to one another. Sometimes they would convince themselves, hey, I'm a new person now, even though they're really not. There was also the forgiveness, I forgive you, but it's the I forgive you but. that was happening in the season finale. Passive aggression, all that kind of stuff. All the basically typical coping mechanisms we have are for our relationships are in Gossip Girl. They're just melodramatic in their caricature. They're made bigger than life. But at the end of the episode, I realized those are all the things we do in our relationships. We hide. We create facades. We manipulate people. When, when, when stress and hurt comes into our relationships, these are all our coping mechanisms. They're just made ridiculous in Gossip Girl. It really is actually a reality in some ways. And that's the second reason. There are a lot of people and a lot of voices competing for our ears to tell us about relationships. But secondly, we inside of us had a lot of wrong ways of dealing with relationships. And so what we're going to do this semester, starting tonight, the flow of the semester is going to feel like this. We're going to start with the general and we're going to get to the specific. And so tonight we're going to step back to Genesis 1 and see what the creation account has to say about relationships in a kind of a general way. And with that in mind, you all have in your, uh, some of you have your Bibles or in your pamphlet. Turn with me to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. <clears throat> then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. We're also going to look briefly at Genesis two eighteen through 25. Um, the Genesis account is Scripture's account. It's Moses' Uh, recording for us the beginning of creation. And in the first chapter, what we have is the seven creation days kind of in a flyby. In the second chapter is a zoom in on the sixth day. The second chapter is uh, Moses stepping back and saying, now here's what went down on the sixth day. And these verses apply there. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to him, to the man, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Pray with me before we start. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. We come here tonight with a lot of different stories, a lot of different history, a lot of different thoughts about relationships. Dear God, I pray, press our hearts into your word. Because even if we hear good things, we can't change ourselves. If your spirit doesn't work in our hearts, we have no hope. Dear Holy Spirit, be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Y'all find I'm kind of a pop culture fan. I realize everybody's a pop culture fan, but I'm a little bit over the top. I think the people that know me can attest to that. Um, There's a phenomenal movie I saw last year. Y'all might have seen it. It's called Into the Wild, directed by Sean Penn. Um, The soundtrack is incredible. Eddie Vedder wrote it and performed it. The soundtrack's worth watching the movie for. But the movie is a true story that recounts the story of a guy named Christopher McCandless. He graduated um, from college in the 90s, And at the end of his college career, deciding what he was going to do for the rest of his life, he looked around, and basically what he did is he looked at the relationships in his life, mainly his parents' relationship, and he saw them, he saw work was hard for them, he saw that their marriage was difficult, he saw that they were bad parents, and he said, that's who I'm becoming if I continue to live in this world. I'm going to be entering into just a world of relational and career pain like my parents. And so the story story sets out as him observing that and saying, I'm going to leave this thing called society because if it's about that, I want to have no part in it. If relationships, if dealing with people is this, I'll have no part of it. And so the the movie is him trekking out west and slowly cutting himself off from personal relationships as he goes into the wild and eventually goes off by himself into the Alaskan wilderness. And as the story unfolds, he even says at one point, he's explaining his behavior to people. He says, you don't need relationships to be happy God has placed it all around us. Again, he's going out to the Pacific Northwest and to Alaska, and he's saying, it's beautiful out here. This is joy being in this. You don't need people for happiness. Anyways, as the story unfolds, he eventually, this is all true, he isolates himself. He uh, wanders off in the Alaskan wilderness. No one knows where he is. No communication. He's, He's committed to living the rest of his life by himself. As the story unfolds, he's actually journaling. That's why we know this. A a writer named John Krakauer compiled his journals and uh, published it into a book. As the story unfolds, he's figuring out what it means to live in the wilderness. And um, what eventually happens is food gets scarce. He brought a gun. He's hunting animals. He can't do that very well. He's starting to eat grubs and roots. And he stumbles upon this root that looks like, according to his wilderness guide, something that is nutritious and edible. And he eats it. 
And when he eats it and then tries to eat again, he realizes he can't eat again. He goes back to his wilderness guide. I can't remember the name of the root, but what he wrote, what he had eaten, was a root that paralyzes your digestive system. And so he didn't feel anything, but his digestive system was paralyzed. And so over the next four or five days, he could eat, but he couldn't digest anything. And the food would, he would lose the food one way or the other is what would happen. And so he actually ate and starved himself to death. And the last words that he wrote in his journal before he died, and the, it's in a, he died, I mean, the movie is incredible visually. The last words he wrote in the journal before he died was this, happiness is real when shared. And so on his deathbed by himself in the Alaskan wilderness, he realized that all of his ideas were a sham. And he died for nothing. It was a failure. <clears throat> I think he's on to something. And I'm sad that he had to figure that out that way. And the main point tonight is really this. A relationship is foundational to what it means to be a human. And tonight what we're going to examine is the primacy of relationship in our lives and secondarily, the purpose of relationship in our lives. First, the primacy. In verse 26 in Genesis 1, God says this. He says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, these are the kind of things that you don't initially notice, but God refers to him in a first person, refers to himself in a first person plural way. He says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is only one of only four instances in the 800 pages of the Old Testament in which God refers to himself in plural. And so when something like that happens in the text, we have to notice it. Why does God say, let us make man in our image? Because he never says things like that. And what's going on in the text is the first thing God's teaching us about is himself. What God's referring to is his Trinitarian nature. If you're familiar with the things of Christian faith, the God of the Bible is a Trinitarian God. He is one God, and He is three persons. Now, I know that's you know philosophically blows our minds, and we're not going to. I'd love to talk about it with you more, but we're not going to go into explaining the Trinity tonight because that's going to take a bajillion nights. But the one thing that we do learn from that is, by nature, God actually by Himself is a community. God is a tri-unity. He is one God, and He is three persons. See, before all of creation, John tells us God is love. God was love before creation. If, for, if God was love before creation, that means there was still an object to which He could display His love. His object was Himself. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The Spirit loved the Father. The Father loved the Spirit, and so on and so forth. God has always been a creature of love because God has always loved Himself because God in a mysterious, wonderful way, is a Trinitarian God. He is three persons and He is one. And in some ways, that's actually the foundational premise for the rest of this semester. Because when we read God saying, let us make man in our image, what God is telling us is, this is one of the few times in the Old Testament where He refers to Himself in a Trinitarian way and He does it when He makes man. And so for us to begin to figure out what it means that we are in God's image one of the first things we have to see here is we are, by nature, relational beings. We are beings made for relationship, made for community. The essence of humanity, because humanity is made in the image of God, is relationship. 
And that means that your social and your spiritual and your emotional and intellectual and physical self was made to relate to other people. And to be humid in all those ways, to image after God in all those ways, is to do this, is to relate and to be in community. And also, let's remember that the Lord's trying relationship with Himself is deeply intimate. The theological term we, that theologians use for how God relates to Himself is it's an inner penetration of the three. It's a deep oneness that goes into deep intimacy. They truly, deeply understand one another. So we're not just made for relationship casually. We're made very deep, intimate relationship. When God says, let us make man in our image, He's saying, let us make man like us. And that man is supposed to be in us. And that man is supposed to relate to one another and to God. We were made to be in relationship. A couple of weeks ago, I skimmed a study. I found this study by a Harvard um, medical school professor, a psychoanalyst, and he studied what solitary confinement does to inmates. And uh, he studied, you know, <clears throat> interviewed and tested hundreds and hundreds of inmates at several different prisons, mostly maximum security prisons. And these are just a brief list of what he found to be true of men who spent prolonged, extended amount of time in solitary confinement. Uh, a third of them uh, experienced hallucinations. Over half of them ended up having several panic attacks. Over half became hypersensitive to stimuli. Anything would just kind of throw them into fits of rage. Over 50% of them had, um, and <clears throat> over 50% of them experienced paranoia. They lost control of their impulses. They actually lost control of their perception. They couldn't see things well. They didn't know where things were. And the study is hundreds of pages long, and that's just a little bit of it. But what it demonstrates is that when we're deprived of relationship, we actually physically, mentally, socially, emotionally, and spiritually break down. That's what happened to these men. We're designed to be in a community, to be in relationship, and not just casually, but in an intimate way. <clears throat> not only are we supposed to be, or are we designed to be in a relationship in a general way, but Genesis also tells us about a specific relationship we're designed for. If we had read all of Genesis 1, it actually kind of reads like a poem. It really feels more like a poem. And one of the reasons it does is because it has a chorus. If we had read all of Genesis 1, you would find out that every couple of verses... For instance, in verse 4, after God created the light, it, the text tells us God looked at the light and saw that it was good. Verse 10, God had created the land and the sea. He saw the land and the sea and saw that it was good. Verse 12, the day and night, and it was good. 18, the animals, God saw that they were good. 21, 25, verse 31. Verse 31 says God created man and he saw that he was very good. Throughout the text of Genesis 1, there's this chorus that God looks at creation and he sees it's good. It's good, it's good. And then he gets to the climax of creation, man, his image bearer, and it's very good. And so as you read that chorus, and then you get to verse 18 in chapter 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. It stands out, right? Because that chorus, that resounding chorus of creation is good, is good, it's good, and then boom, it is not good. It's a literary device Moses is using to say, hey, this, you've got to pay attention to this because this disrupts the chorus of this poem of creation. And what was the instance in which God said it wasn't good? It's not good that man should be alone. And we have to get what's going on right here. This is before sin entered in the world. 
God and Adam had a perfect relationship. Adam had a perfect relationship with creation. Everything went well. There was no pain. There was no sin. There was no injustice. No one had ever been hurt. Everything was perfect. Sin hadn't entered the world. And God says this, It's not good that man should be alone. So I'll make her a helper. I'll make him a helper fit for him. And then we have the story of them trying to figure out if any of the animals were a suitable helper, which had to be an interesting scenario, like the horse, the dog. You know, how do you consider that? Um, and then the story where God's made Eve, where he put Adam to sleep and realized he had to make Eve to be a helper suitable. Now, this is what we've got to realize right here. In a perfect world, God looked at a perfect world where everything was right and everybody was happy, and he said this, you know what will make perfection better? Marriage. The only way to improve in a perfect creation is to add marriage to it. That's to sit in our hearts deep. That's what's going on. Creation is perfect, but you know what makes it better? Marriage. And in fact, what's really another interesting detail is Verse 23, then the man said, after Eve had been created, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So shall, be, so shall she be called woman, because she was taken out of man. The first words that man's ever recorded as saying is him getting fired up about his wife. The first words that God chooses to share with us that a man ever said that are recorded is Adam saying, I'm excited about Eve. I'm excited about my wife. These are the kind of textual details that, God, that show us that God loves marriage. And not only that, we are at our foundational core made for marriage. A covenantal deep oneness. We're going to unpack what marriage is throughout the semester, but for tonight we're made for a covenantal deep oneness with someone of the opposite gender. We're going to talk about singleness throughout the, marriage. We're going to, uh, throughout the semester. We're going to address those things, but for the point right now, God loves marriage, and he made us for marriage. In fact, even back in chapter 1 when he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Even at that point, what God is saying is, it's actually a marriage in a sense in which you become more my image than alone. That male and female together, y'all complement each other, complete each other in a way that makes you almost more my image than man alone. Marriage is at the central of what it means and what, to understand ourselves as humans. We are made for a relationship in general. We are also made for marriage. Now, there's some implications before we go on to the purpose of relationship. This, and what I'm demonstrating to you is the primacy of relationship, and there's some implications. First of all, this means that when your relationships are healthy, that you're healthy. And vice versa, when your relationships are falling apart, that you're falling apart. Because our identity, in many ways, is wrapped up in those relationships. This means that as your relationships are restored, nourished, becoming more intimate in appropriate ways, that you're really becoming more human. You're becoming more who you're intended to be. And it also means that as you flee from relationships, and as you generate facades, and as we create bears of dishonesty, as we sin against each other in relationships, we're actually becoming less human. We're becoming less who we're intended to be. And this is demonstrated in everyday life. Because when the best things that happen to you happen, the first instinct is to pull out your cell phone and tell somebody, right? Joy is meant to be shared. You're meant to experience the greatest moments and to thrive in a relationship. The worst thing that happens is when great things happen and you can't tell anybody, right? 
you want to call somebody. On the other hand, the darkest moments in our life are predicated on and experienced in relational rupture and alienation and loss and loneliness. And this is why losing somebody is hard. It's because you weren't meant to. You weren't supposed to lose people. You weren't supposed to give your heart to somebody and lose them. You weren't supposed to love your grandparents and lose them. That was never the intention. You were meant to be in, be in and thrive in relationships. And so when they come undone, they tear us up. Uh, divorced adults are, um, are more susceptible to severe emotional and psychological problems. Uh, they have much higher likelihood of earlier death than for married individuals. The suicide rate for divorced men is four times higher than it is for married men. Divorced men and women suffer to a much greater degree than married persons from cancer, from cardiovascular disease, from strokes, pneumonia, hypertension, and suicide. Divorced and separated men undergo inpatient and outpatient psychiatric care at a rate of 10 times more than married men. Children of divorce are twice likely to drop out of school. They're 12 times more likely to have been incarcerated. Rates of child abuse are 8 to 10 times higher in step or blended and sole parent families and in natural two-parent families. Now, what I'm not saying is for you to be healthy, you have to be um, in a marriage. And what I'm not saying is God can't fix these situations. But what things, and we all experience this in our lives and we experience in our friends' lives, what these statistics reveal is that when relationships break, it breaks us down. It breaks us down mentally and emotionally and socially and even physically. And the reason why it breaks us down is because we weren't made to have broken relationships. We were made to be in intimate, real, genuine, lasting relationships. When you are healthy in relationships, you are healthy. Secondly, what you do, uh, another implication is what you do in private always has relational ripples in your life. We live in an age where Technology allows us to kind of live private lives in a lot of ways. I'm not going on a thing against technology. I love it. I have an iPhone. It's the greatest thing in the world. (laughs) But we often buy the lie that we can do things in private and they don't affect anyone. And, you know, the easy example is pornography. That is the victimless crime. But as you involve in pornography, which is physical fantasy, but relational fantasy and romantic fantasy can be just as detrimental as that kind of sexual fantasy... When you involve yourself in private in those fantasies, you're formulating ways of thinking about sexuality and thinking about romance and love, and they have relational ripples in your life. They, you might not see the connection, but they come out in your life as you relate to people. Because we're relational pe- uh, people, it means that there's nothing you do that doesn't have relational ripples in your life. Thirdly, it means that Christian spirituality is not a private affair. There's this kind of idea out there that the climactic moments of Christian spirituality are your devotional life at home by yourself, praying in your room, in your dorm room. If we are by nature relational um, beings, then we are, in a sense, most spiritually whole with a group of people. And actually, Paul and all of Scripture tested that over and over again as we learned that the church is a body of believers and that together we grow up into maturity not separately in our dorm rooms during our prayer life. And I think one of the reasons we substitute that kind of spirituality for real spirituality or healthier form of spirituality, which is corporate, pray by yourself, read your Bible by yourself. I'm not telling you not to do that. But what I am saying is oftentimes we think that's the climax of spiritual living. And I think the reason we do it is because it's actually easy. 
Because the fruits of the Spirit are easy to bear when you're by yourself in your room. I know we all struggle with sin, but it's easy to be patient when no one's there. And it's easy to love when no one's there. It's easy to be forbearing when no one's there. The fruits of the Spirit are easy in your quiet time. They're much harder in the church. In a lot of sense, I think they're more real when they're in the church, and they're more real when they're a lot harder. If we're relational beings, spirituality is not exercised alone. It's exercised together. Fourthly, another implication. Here's the fun one. Wanting to get married and wanting to have sex are good. Wanting to get married and wanting to have sex are good. All the girls and all the guys are relieved right there, right? (laughs) On both sides, about both issues. Um, This actually means to enter into a dating relationship, thinking about marriage, means you're mature, not a freak. It doesn't mean that you ask somebody to marry you on the first date, and it doesn't mean that you practice marriage while you're dating. But dating with, while considering marriage means you're mature. It means you're mature, and if you can't handle that, then you don't understand dating, you don't understand relationships. But it all, and it means, uh, just like it means wanting to get married is good, it also means wanting to have sex is good. That is a good, God-driven desire. And a lot of us need to realize that this thing that we call our sex trap is really God telling us, you were made to get married. That's what it is. It's God's way of telling us we're made to get married. Last implication before we move to the next point is, fifthly, if we're made for a relationship, and relationships what we live in, by nature, relationships are not about us. Relationships are not about you. Because there are two people relating to one another. But often what we do, instead of building any kind of mature relationship where our concern is genuinely for the other person or for something even beyond the other person, we just want people who think like us and who look like us and act like us and let's have fun together, but let's not deal with one another. If that's what relationship is, then conflict will divide you. But if relationship is something bigger than that, in genuine friendships, conflict will actually become the place where you become most intimate. Conflict will be the circumstances in which you grow in intimacy as you forgive with one another and as you deal with one another. But many of us simply just ask other people to agree with us, have fun with us, fill our needs, not impose, and definitely not confront us, right? That's what we want in most of our friendships. Our friendships are really, our relationships are based on them making us happy, which means that our relationships are essentially parasitic in nature. And we feed off to them, off of other people, until it becomes inconvenient or until conflict comes. Relationships are by nature not about us. That's the primacy of relationship. We are made for relationship. It has a lot of implications. We're going to unpack that stuff. Second thing, real hopefully briefly, is the purpose of relationship. We also get this in the Genesis passage. In verses 1, 27 on, God created man in his own image. Image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed him, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. In order to understand humanity and our calling and our design, I want to suggest to you that it's all right here in this verse. In the very beginning words of Scripture, when God created man, male and female, he made him in his image, and he gave man a task. 
And our task was to be kings over creation for the true high king, which is God. And he said, I made you, and I made you in my image, you're like me, and now you're going to rule this creation for me as my kings, and I am the high king. And so what I want you to do is I want you to have children, and I want you to get to know each other, and I want you to work creation, cultivate it, build civilizations, build cultures. This is what the calling of Genesis is for man. This is the task God created man for and commanded him to do. And the primary social institution, the foundational relational unit by which man is intended to do it is marriage. And what that means is that tells us about what the purpose of marriage is. The purpose of marriage is this. It's one, it's two people becoming one so that together they can bring the reign of God into this world. Marriage is two people becoming one for this purpose, to bring the reign of God into the world. Has anybody thought about marriage that way? But it's very clear in Genesis 1 and 2. That's what marriage is for. Eve is a helper suitable. She's a helper that complements Adam. That means she's strong where he's weak, and he's strong where she's weak. But she's helper, help, when we're told she's a helper suitable, that means she's a helper for a certain task. It's this task of having dominion over creation, of building things, of cultivating culture, of building civilizations. The calling of marriage, the purpose of marriage, is to bring the reign of God into this world. The creation, the climax of creation, again, is us as God's image bearers. And we're intended to be as children and the kings for this creation to make it beautiful. But we ran into a problem. And we're going to talk about more next week. But the problem is we rejected God's kingship in our hearts. We rejected his reign in our hearts. And so before we can really talk about the purpose of marriage being restoring the reign of God, the first thing that has to happen is God has to restore his reign in our hearts. And that's what Jesus comes and does. He came and he died for our rebellion. He died for our rejection of God and of his design. And he died so as in order to restore us to God. But that's not all he did. Jesus didn't just die to save us from our sins. He also died to restore us back again to our task. We're not just saved from our sins. Spirituality and religion is not just us getting our conscience smoothed over. And if that's all religion or spirituality is for you, then your religion is hopelessly inward. These are um, a good friend of mine. These are his words. Les Newsom is hopelessly inward and disconnected from the rest of the world. If that's all Jesus does for you, and I'm not saying that it's not important. It's huge and it's central, and it's the manner in which we're restored to our task. But his death for our sins is not all he does because he resurrected himself from the dead. He rose again from the dead, and he brought new life. And our calling now is we're restored in Him because He died for our sins is now to be agents of Him bringing that new life in the world. Agents, again, of bringing the reign of God into the world. And that's what our marriages are about. That's what our marriages are designed for. If Jesus is only forgiveness for your sins, then that means religion is really just you feeling better about the things you did wrong. And it will feel disconnected from the rest of your life. But... If Jesus restored us to God and restored us to our new mission, to the task again of reigning, bringing God's reign in the world, all of a sudden your religion has impact on everything you do. Because your original calling was to bring the reign of God in the world, to cultivate and make culture beautiful. Only now we have the double task of also helping Jesus restore people's hearts to Him. This is biblical religion. God made a husband and a wife to love Him, 
and to love each other and to help him rule the world. And they rejected God and they rebelled against him. And that frustrated everything because what you do in relationships has ripples. It frustrated work. It frustrated relationships. And since that moment, God set in course this plan to fix everything that was undone by rebellion and to fix that somebody had to die. And that's what Jesus came and did. But the plan is not complete. As he has become, as he's restored in our hearts, as we are restored to him, the plan is still not complete. And we know this because there's still sin in our lives and there's still pain in our lives. And there's still sin in everyone else's lives and still pain in everyone else's lives. So the kingdom of God has not gone as far as, it is, as it's going to go. And so what we do right now is we participate, we become agents in the kingdom of God going out into the world. That's what marriage is. It's joining with someone who compliments you so that you can bring the reign of God, the good news of Jesus, the peace of Jesus, the justice of a good and right God into the world and make things right again. Isn't that a far more epic, richer view of marriage than something like romance? I like that version of marriage a whole lot more. So what are some application points? These are the application for the whole semester in some ways. First of all, we have to reconsider the way we think about marriage and the way we think about relationships. Namely, one of the things we'll talk about is just romance might not be central because maybe romance is just kind of you know, our sinful heart getting out of control sometimes. I'm not saying all romance is bad, but I'm saying the serious physical affection and erotic love we have while we're dating, maybe that's not love. Maybe that's not what we should base our marriage on. Well, another thing we have to consider is maybe marriage is not an end, but rather a means. That maybe the end that we're really anticipating in life is something much bigger than that. It's really the Lamb's Feast when all things are made new again. And so marriage is a means toward that end. Because I know there are a lot of people sitting in this room because we've all had this thought that once you get married, you're finally there. That marriage really is salvation. You can finally rest, right? You're married. That's it. What if marriage is a means and not an end? We have to reconsider the way we think about relationships and marriage and lastly, the thing we have to consider, and this is imagery that actually Tim Keller, who Trey Hobbs is doing his um, book study on, uses so well. We have to consider what it means to live in a world with windows. And what Tim Keller means when he says that is essentially this. The word secular, its roots, actually in um, Latin and like Middle English, mean now or of this age. And to live in a secular fashion is to live in a world in which all that matters is the now. All that matters is this age. And the way Keller appropriates this kind of language of world without windows is it's living in a world without windows. It's living in a world in which there's nothing beyond. You can't see any further than your day or your task. You're not a part of a larger story. You're just doing stuff until you die. So as we consider marriage and consider everything throughout the semester, I want to implore you, do you live in a world without windows? Is there anything beyond today? Are you just going to do stuff and die? Are you willing to consider that maybe in Scripture we begin to see a world world with windows? A world in which we see beyond, and maybe it's dark and maybe it's cloudy at times, but we see that this is not all there is. We don't just do stuff and die. But rather... God is restoring his reign in this world and he's making things right again. 
and he's restoring us to him first, and after he restores us to him, it's so glorious that we begin to long to restore other people. And we begin to long to fix the things that are wrong with the world, not just in people's hearts, but also with their bodies, also with their finances. All the things that we do, all the other occupations are all of a sudden legitimate. Again, our, inward, our religion is not something inward, it's intensely outward. So what we want to do is consider what would it look like to live in a world with windows? To consider that life is more than just doing some stuff and then dying. Are you willing to consider that relationships, marriage, life is more than just the here and now? Or do you want to live in a world without windows? With no hope, in which case your best strategy might be to be a relational parasite. Or do you want to live in a world with windows? Because that's reality. And our darkened and our selfish hearts can't see it a lot of times, but God is gracious to give us His Word. It's a place where our eyes begin to see a little bit of light, and we begin to see that there's a greater story at work. And it has meaning for everything we do, not just in our devotional life in, uh, in the morning, in our minds and in our hearts. It has immense impact on everything we do, especially in relationships. He started fixing the world from creation, and He died for the sins of the people who had come to Him. And he calls us now back to him to live in a world with windows where we see that all is not right right now. And I know there's a lot of pain in this life, and there's a lot of pain that's going to keep going on in this life, in each of your individual lives. Everything's not right right now, but in a world with windows, we see beyond that, and we see the book of Revelation, which is confusing and glorious, but what it tells us is that at the end, there are not going to be any more tears. At the end, everything's going to be made right again. Are you willing to live in that world? In some ways, that's really our challenge for this semester.